to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Martha McKenna. Martha has been a campaign manager, worked at the upper echelons of both Emily's List and the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee before starting her own media firm, McKenna Media. Martha's one of the Democratic Party's top strategists and involved in races from mayor and state legislature to gubernatorial and Senate races. I'm thrilled to be able to spend some time today talking with Martha. Martha McKenna, tell me about growing up in Baltimore. Oh, I um, love Baltimore. It is a place that has lots of neighborhoods that have their own traditions and customs and culture. And, um, you know, I grew up in Baltimore County and went to high school at an all-girls Catholic high school that I'm very proud of, the Institute of Notre Dame um, in East Baltimore. We have two um, famous alums, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Barbara Mikulski. It's a school that has a long tradition and is in East Baltimore. So when I went to IND from Baltimore County for high school, I was able to meet girls from all over the city. And um, I really loved it. It was a diverse school and it was a, you know, sort of in a very encouraging place and a very supportive place. And, you know, that's where to me, when I think about growing up in Baltimore, I really think about the Institute of Notre Dame which unfortunately closed last year um, at the, just as sort of COVID, it was one of the victims of COVID. Um, and it the, the class that graduated June of last year was the final class. And, you know, that's hard, but I think, you know, our city is changing as all cities are, but Baltimore just has an, a real community feel. It's an eclectic place. It has um, currently, I'll tell you as an example, you know, there's, I don't know if every city has the yellow salt boxes for where like the city provides salt for icing your streets and they're just plain utilitarian yellow boxes that say salt box. Well, over the last few months, artists have started um, decorating the salt boxes around the city and they have very clever, some are Baltimore focused, some are music, some different, different ways of um, celebrating different things in our culture or in Baltimore or in current events. So the salt boxes now in the city have all been painted. And, you know, it's just a place where that kind of creativity is encouraged. So tell me about the the politics of Baltimore as you remember them growing up as, as a kid who's, uh, you know, interested in politics or just absorbing what is going on uh, around you. What are the politics of Baltimore like at that time? Sure. Well, the Mayor's races in Baltimore are really exciting. And I, my first real experience volunteering on a campaign was in 1995 for a woman named Mary Pat Clark, who actually just retired this year from the Baltimore City Council. She um, ran for mayor and uh, Kurt Schmoke was up for reelection. And when I walked into Mary Pat Clark's headquarters to volunteer, you know, first off, two things that changed the direction of my life. One is that she had two women campaign managers, um, a woman who is still very active here in Baltimore, a school teacher uh, named Linda Everhart. And um, uh, Cheryl Benton was the other person who um, is a longtime operative in the party. And these two women who were the campaign managers really set such a great example for me and also took me in under their wing. I mean, I can remember Linda Everhart just like saying, pull up a chair and come sit next to me and just taught me and, and, and really showed me um, what campaign life was like and how to run smart campaigns that bring people together. But then the other thing about that campaign that changed the direction of my life is so many of my close friends come from that experience on the Mary Pat Clark campaign in 95 um, because you know, while it was probably three years after I had graduated from high school and I was between, I think, junior and senior year of college, I got to meet all these young people in Baltimore City who were also interested in politics. And now, you know, Odette Ramos is um, the first Hispanic woman elected to the Baltimore City Council. She was on that campaign. And Luke Klippinger, who is in the General Assembly, um, he was on that campaign. Just so many fun people who were interested in politics were my age. We all became close friends and many of them are now in elected office themselves. And so, you know, I just think those kinds of positive campaign experiences are what got me connected to Baltimore in a different way. But also I just think our mayor's races here are very 
much about bread and butter. It's about fighting poverty, delivering quality services to people, creating opportunity. And, and I think those are frankly the most important kinds of races. I always like to say, like when you run for Congress and you do phone banking, people are like, are you a Democrat or a Republican? And that's how they make their choice. Well, if you're running for mayor and you're phone banking, you're li as liable to get somebody on the other end of the line saying like, well, my cousin needs a job and the and the power lines are down in the backyard and there's a mattress on the end of the street that DPW hasn't picked up. People are so engaged in their in with their city council people and their mayor just in, in getting things done for their community, big and small. And that's really what Baltimore politics are all about, the details. Yeah, and so you mentioned IND having a, an important role in your development. Did you grow up in a political family? Was was politics front and center in your family or not so much? Not so much. My um my parents are, you know, very involved in the in the neighborhoods where we grew up and they were involved in our schools and they follow the news, but I would not say that they were political people. I never knew them to have a yard sign or to be a donor or anything like that. Um but you know, to their credit, they definitely encouraged me as I sort of set out in this kind of a career where I was traveling around the country and, you know, for months on end and, and sort of checking in um, uh, from the road, but they, they were definitely not political. Now my dad's family is from Iowa and uh, there are a number of caucus goers in his family, but our family itself in Baltimore was not. You mentioned getting involved in mayoral politics in the mid-90s, but even before then, were there political figures at the national level, at the local level that spoke to you or engaged you, the political figures that uh, stand out to you as, as important in your in your own development? Sure. A couple things. One is my mom is definitely grew up in Baltimore, in Baltimore City, in a big Irish Catholic family. And She's definitely the kind of person that I find myself now. When you go somewhere in Baltimore, you inevitably run into someone you know. And that I can remember that feeling when I was a kid, sort of wherever we went, my mom would know someone, whether it was an Oreo game or the grocery store, she'd run into somebody that she knew and she'd stand and chat and how are you? And so the idea that Mikulski started, you know, was elected to the Senate in the 80s and sort of was somebody who we knew, we all sort of knew and were proud of. Um, and who I now have a terrific personal friendship with uh, that's very much, a, very important to me. On the other hand, then when I was, I can clearly remember in, I was in third grade and the fourth grade was having a debate. You can tell where this is going. I think a lot of people in politics had similar experiences. Geraldine Ferraro was the vice presidential candidate. And, you know, the fourth grade, everybody knew the fourth grade was going to be having a presidential debate. But I, in the third grade, felt that it was only appropriate that there would also be a space for Geraldine Ferraro, either a vice presidential debate or something. And so I um, wrote a speech that I felt that the person who was in the fourth grade going to be delivering the Mondale side of things should include in his or her presentation. And I walked it up to the fourth grade classroom and get handed it to the nun and sort of went back to my third grade classroom, but definitely have felt since I was coming up. And then I went to a very sort of social justice type of environment for high school at IND, which was all girls. Like I have been very aware of women in politics, the number of women in politics, the sort of personalities around women in politics. And clearly that's been something that has, I really do believe sort of having a, a Ferraro on the ticket and also sort of having Mikulski play this role as our U.S. Senator in Maryland for so long, sort of create, they created along the way spaces for women like me now in my forties to um, consider politics as a career. You know, that's, that's a very important thing. I think, as we think about the kinds of people that are ele in elected office this week, for example, with Deb Holland's nomination hearing happening tomorrow for secretary of interior, you know, there are native American kids around the country watching and following, following her saying, that there's a role for them in government and in politics too. And I, I think all of that is, it all adds up to a, a good thing for our democracy, a good thing for our country. And, you know, I do think that I have had a particular, um, the women in politics in Maryland and, and in national politics as I was coming up definitely had a really important impact on me. 
I think when Senator Mikulski was first elected, might have been as few as just two women in mm-hmm. the Senate, which is just uh, bizarre to think about. So you're very involved in a mayoral race in in uh, Baltimore in the mid '90s, and that experience. Uh, shortly after that, you find yourself, as you mentioned, in a an itinerant campaign road warrior. How do you go from a Baltimore mayoral race to hitting the road uh, all over the country? So I did that mayor's race between my junior and senior year, and then I graduated early from college in December. So I was done in three and a half years and I quickly volunteered on another campaign in Baltimore, actually. And it was a federal campaign. Kwasi and Fume had stepped down to run the NAACP. And so there was a special election in that district, which was at the time Baltimore City, Baltimore County District, sort of a Western side district. And um, I went to the local library the Towson Library, and I uh, did a little research on each of the candidates, and I decided to go volunteer for Dolores Kelly, who is remains a very powerful state senator here in Maryland, and she was running for Congress at the time. Elijah Cummings ended up winning that race, but I worked for Dolores Kelly and learned a ton, and it was a fabulous experience, and in that process is when I learned about Emily's List. Now, there were a couple of women in that race, including um, another uh, good friend of mine, Salima Marriott. Um, and so Emily's List did not get involved because there were multiple women in the race. But soon after that experience where I did more field and some press uh, and fundraising, a little bit of everything, I went to a campaign tra- training that the DNC and Emily's List were hosting. And I ended up talking to somebody at that training about the race and asking why Emily's List hadn't gotten involved. And soon thereafter, I was connected with their job bank and their training program and sort of was off to the races, um, literally and figuratively. And who were some of the uh, the folks at Emily's List who were uh, were hands-on in that era? Who were some of the people you were, you were oh, dealing with? I mean, the craziest thing about it is the person who was running the job bank at that time now works with me at McKenna Media, and that's Sheila O'Connell. So Sheila O'Connell, it was a, it was the era of Sheila O'Connell and Mary Beth Cahill, Joe Salmanese, Karen Johansson, you know, Ellen Malcolm. That was when Emily's List really had a huge training program and a big job bank to get to help people get out on campaigns. There are lots of different ways of doing that now, but at the time the internet was brand new. They're really sharing information about what candidates were running around the country was what Emily's List did so that people in Baltimore knew that there was a woman running in Missouri, but they also, you know, helped move resumes around so that people in Missouri could get campaign staff from, from other places. And so I, uh, Sheila O'Connell was running the job bank. She's now works with me at McKenna Media all these years later, being brought into the Emily's List fold and, you know, learning how to be a campaign manager, how to talk to the press, sort of how to make budgetary decisions on campaigns, all of that at the beginning of my career just made all the difference in the world. I'm not really sure what I would have ended up doing if I hadn't had that kind of strong, strong, strong support from Emily's List in the very beginning of my career. And we mentioned how few uh, women senators there were, uh, Democratic or otherwise, when Senator Mikulski was first elected, but Emily's List was really pretty, pretty new on the scene. Yep. And I think that Mikulski was elected in 86, I think, and 86, I think, was the very first cycle for Emily's List. And I started working there in 97, I think, and and then stayed there for the 98 cycle. And then I went out and I managed an Emily's List race in 2000, another Emily's List race in 2002. And then I came back and I was at the at Emily's List itself for 2004 cycle in 2006. We'll, we'll talk so, a bit about being on the road as a campaign manager before uh, uh, reaching well, the I upper I think it's the best advice that anybody gave me early on. And it's I love telling people now when I'm doing informational interviews, the way to learn about politics and the way to really learn about how to win campaigns is by going out and being a campaign staffer in a part of the country that you don't know. And that... I mean that because I think we all should do politics at home and we should all fight to change our own communities. And I certainly, you know, I can't imagine a time where I won't have an opinion about what's happening in Baltimore City. But I also think that, you know, the opportunity for me to get out there and I managed to race in Louisville, Kentucky, where I still have strong ties and good friendships. And then I went to Michigan and Ann Arbor and and all these other places that I got to sort of stay for a year, eight months or a year. I got to just understand different different people's points of view, got to work closely with allies and groups and labor and others and different communities. And that to me still is such valuable experience. And so when I'm talking to folks who are interested in working on campaigns or working in politics, I always encourage them to take that opportunity to 
go to another part of the country that they might not be familiar with and just immerse themselves in the in the customs and the culture and the politics of a new place. We could probably talk, uh, you know, a whole separate conversation about the skill of being a can- campaign manager, but you've worn that hat yourself. You've seen dozens, hundreds perhaps of, of various campaign managers. Is there a, a practical tip or two that, that that is consistent or common in campaign managers who you see are doing a good job? Um, you know, I think that being sometimes uh, campaign managers feel like they have to have it all figured out and have all the answers because there is a, you know, there's a bit of a mythology around the winning campaign manager and the come from behind race or whatever. And I just think you got to take a lot of that pressure off yourself and build a campaign full of people who are as smart and hardworking as you can possibly find. They need to work as hard as your candidate works or harder because the candidate is by putting their name on the ballot is really making that, taking that brave step. And, you know, the campaign manager's job is to um, make decisions every day. You got to just make decisions and you have to be confident in your own ability to gather information, ask questions, get to the bottom of it, make a decision and keep it moving. And I think, you know, there's so much analysis um, and so much sort of hand wringing that happens. But fundamentally, when you're a manager, there's a limited amount of time, a limited limited amount of money. You just got to be able to sort of Take what you the information you have, make a strong decision, implement it, move on to the next one. And and you know, you can always make adjustments. You can always, there's nothing ever done that's permanent. But you know, I just think that's you gotta feel confident in your own decision making ability if you're gonna go out and be a manager. That's great advice. You mentioned after being on the road, you're at Emily's list again at that point. Obviously, people know what Emily's list is and what their mission is of electing pro-choice democratic women, but what does your day-to-day look like as you're working at Emily's List in that era? (laughs) Oh, it was so long ago. The technology has changed so much. So I was a researcher, which basically means I did um, public records research on our candidates and on our opponents. And this was when, before Google, you know, before anything like that. And so you would, you know, LexisNexis searches, which most people probably have no idea what they are, but they were the way that newspaper articles were organized um, from a research perspective back then. And you would put your keywords in and then you put a stapler on the enter button on your computer and let it run and put insert floppy disks into the computer until the floppy disk was full. And you put it so you'd have these big stacks of floppy disks at the end labeled one of one or you know one of 21, two of 21, three of 21. And they would be like the record for Jane Harmon every time that Jane Harmon's name was ever mentioned in the press. And then you'd have, you'd go through it and organize it. The truth of it is like what I learned at Emily's List is like, you can never be too prepared. So you have to do all of the research and all of the reading and all of the thinking and then ask all the tough questions. And that's the part of it that there's no detail too big or too small. And you have a role to play and everyone has a role and we all get together and sort of try to figure out how to win. And so in the Emily's List day to day back then, it it was some travel and it was definitely some getting into to be inside of campaign headquarters. But at the time, and when I got started there, I really was writing these big research reports on the publicly available records of our candidates. And and in your time there, was there a race or two that that you're more most proud of, or just felt more emotionally invested in than others in your Emily's List era? I mean, I certainly wasn't responsible for the win, but you know, we used to have these great experiences. I'm thinking of 19. 19- 98, I think it was when Jan Schakowsky won in a primary in Chicago, there were a number of, of men running and Jan Schakowsky was the only woman. And it was, if I remember correctly, the primary was on St. Patrick's Day or somewhere thereabout. And we went out to Chicago, like tons of us and just door knocked and we had our own turf. It was really well organized. We had a lot of fun. But like, you know, I think those kinds of experiences where you get out of the office and you go talk to voters, that's, that's really rewarding. I'll say I definitely... Ellen Malcolm always said the best way to add a woman to Congress and is the open seat Democratic primary. And she definitely, you know, would have us jump on all of those kinds of opportunities to make sure when there was a Democratic seat that came open that a, a woman was ready to run. Um, you know, I did a lot of Senate races there during some tough years and in that 2004. But it was really I was the political director on the candidate side in 2006. And that was you know, that that made it all worth it. You know, 2006 was the night that um, it just felt like we had such a breakthrough and picked up so many seats. And, you know, that that was really um, when almost 10 years of hard work sort of 
broke through in a in a in a really big way on election night. And that's a, a Claire McCaskill. Who else would have been in that class? That would well, it was have a been... ton of women in the House too. Right. I mean, it was like Carol Shea Porter and Nancy Boyda, and I mean, so many women that, that serve in Congress that don't even serve anymore, but who were there in 2006, like winning seats that were deemed unwinnable. It was just the kind of place where no long shot was too long. Like every race was worth fighting and every um, candidate was worth considering. And, you know, that, that, that gives you, you know, sort of a work ethic and a can do attitude that has served me well through the years. You have a very successful cycle at Emily's List as political director. Uh, and then I believe right after that, you uh, transition to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. How does that how does that happen? How do you go from one one pillar of the Democratic establishment to the other? Well, I took a, a detour in the middle. So I um, ended up coming home to Baltimore and I managed the campaign for the first woman mayor of Baltimore City, Sheila Dixon, who um, I remain really close to and is a good friend still. And she was the city council president when Martin O'Malley had won his race for governor. So she was stepping into the role of mayor and then had to seek reelection. And I remember meeting her soon as it soon after O'Malley won, but before she was sworn in as mayor. So it was like an interim period between the election day and his swearing in as governor. And I remember going into the meeting and not knowing quite what to expect. But when I met with the city, then city council president Dixon, she was so clear and she said, look, I have three things I need to do. I need to have a transition team full of ideas and to get myself ready to be the mayor. I have to close out everything that's happening in the city council president's office. And I have to raise money and build support to run for reelection or run for election as mayor. And so I sort of could tell just in that first meeting that she was somebody who understood what the job was in front of her and was up to the task. Because I sort of half expected her to say like, I'm going to focus on the transition to mayor. I can do that. And once I get six months down the road, I'll focus on the campaign. And she was like, no, 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 I'm on the campaign. I'm going to be mayor and I'm going to wrap up the job I have. So all of these things can happen simultaneously. So it did not take long before I was hired as her campaign manager. And I um, served in that role through the, the primary election, which we won. And then it was really only a couple of days later that I got a call about going in and interviewing with Schumer and J.B. Persh about being the political director because um, Guy Cecil was leaving to go to the Clinton campaign. You did not have to ask me twice to interview for that job or to accept it when it was offered. I had no hesitation. I mean, I just was going, I just jumped at the chance to get to learn from the best. And that is really what I, I think of leader Schumer. I think he's the best. I think he has such unbelievable insight and work ethic and just ability to manage information. He is so smart. And, you know, I just went, um, you know, for better part of four years and just learned as much as I could from that dynamic duo of J.B. Persh and Chuck Schumer. Well, demystify a little bit. What is the the, the job of being political director? What does that look like? What is, what is the day-to-day? When I was the political director there for the 2008 cycle, I came in halfway through and the 2010 cycle. For example, one of the coolest things that happened soon after I was hired in 2008, JB um, and um, Schumer talked to me about the North Carolina Senate race. Elizabeth Dole was up. At the time, of course, she was never going to be defeated. She was safe in a red state. They had been recruiting and they talked to a different couple candidates, but they needed somebody to pay more attention to this recruitment than had been. And so they said, look, we want you to dig in here. We want you to go meet this candidate we have in Greensboro. Her name is Kay Hagan. Go spend some time with her. Come back and tell us what you think. The end of my first week on the job, I was flying to Greensboro to meet with Kay Hagan and, and her husband, Chip. And, you know, I just remember very clearly on the plane home that day thinking, I'm going to go in there and tell these guys that she's the real deal, you know, that Kay Hagan is somebody who has what it takes. And obviously she did. And obviously she went on to beat Elizabeth Dole in a come from behind race. Those are the kinds of jobs and kinds of missions that a political director goes out on, both from a recruiting perspective. And then I did one of the things that I was really proud of as political director, particularly in the 2010 cycle, is that the majority of campaign managers managing U.S. Senate races on the Democratic side of the aisle were women. You know, and I just felt like Every chance that I've had, I have tried to take it very seriously to bring on other, bring along other women. Thinking back to that experience that I had in 1995, walking into my first campaign headquarters and having two campaign managers as, you know, women as campaign managers say to me, come sit next to me and I'll teach you the ropes. 
So I've tried my hardest to do that for other women. And, you know, that the idea that we had a majority of women managing U.S. Senate races in 2010 was really a point of pride for me. In 2010, despite being a very difficult cycle, uh, in a lot of ways for Democrats, Democrats hold the Senate is by no means a given, uh, demonstrating the, um, the the success of of Democrats in that Senate map. Uh, soon after that, you run the Independent Expenditure Program uh, for the DSCC. Yes. What do you know about strategy that maybe you wouldn't have picked up if you hadn't spent a lot of time at a very high level on independent expenditure campaigns? I think that one of the things that we do oftentimes that we need to think differently about that I really take from the IE experience at the DSCC is I think we often plot out the campaign we want to run against a candidate starting whenever we start, say we start in the spring or we start in the summer and we go on the air and we sort of know what we're building, how we want to start the campaign. But I don't believe that we spend enough time thinking about how we want to finish a campaign. And I think it's entire, it's even more intense now than it was Um, two, four, six years ago, voters do not tune in until the very end. And so races bounce around all summer, they bounce around all fall. But when the real voters that you need to get are finally tuning in, they're finally paying attention and processing the information, either just as early voting is starting, or even, you know, the final week or 10 days of a race. And there are U.S. Senate campaigns, U.S. Senate races that have entirely swung in a new direction in the final seven days. And so I really believe and have focused on how do we close this race as opposed to how do we open it? Because I think that we we really spend so much time thinking about how we start a race and how we lay the groundwork that sometimes at, in the heat of the moment, in the rush at the end, and everyone's exhausted and all of that, you know, we're not necessarily putting our strongest argument on the air in the end of a campaign. And that is a mistake. Ending with a bang and not sort of a fizzle. That, that makes right. a lot of a lot of sense. So after the 14 cycle, you, you, again, you're both through 12 and 14 serving, running the independent expenditure for the DSEC. I believe that's when you decide to start your own firm. How are you thinking about that decision? I mean, even aside from aside from exactly what your firm looked like, how are you thinking about that decision? You'd, you'd been at very high levels at Emily's List and the DSEC and been a manager. I assume you had a you know fair amount of options in front of you. So how were you thinking through that uh, as a decision? Sure. So um, Jen Palaja was the political director at the Democratic Campaign Committee when I was the political director at the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. She was at the Congressional Campaign Committee while I was at the Senate side as we were both political directors. We had both come up through the research department at Emily's List and managed a bunch of races. So we had known each other a really long time. And this was that we started the firm in January of 2011. So I actually did the work at the DSCC, i.e. as a contract through the firm. And so we just now in January have hit our 10-year mark as a firm. And um, Jen and I started the firm really, frankly, because to be perfectly honest, like the same 12 people made all the ads for all the Democrats around the country. And we felt like there was space for younger people and women to, at the table to make ads to help candidates tell their stories and to win races because we just felt like, you know, I don't think I'm telling any secrets to say that it was sort of older white men were dominating the media consulting industry and still do on the Democratic side. And, you know, we felt like there was a space for some younger women storytellers and ad makers. So we started in January of 2011 as McKenna Palaja. We were, people were so generous and giving us opportunity and we were sort of off to the, off to the races right away. Our, one of our first races that we did was for a young man who was running for the mayor of uh, South Bend, Indiana. So we made Pete Buttigieg's ads for mayor in 11 and his reelect in 15. We worked right away for Louise Slaughter, a congresswoman from the Rochester area who has since passed. uh, Upstate New York. Upstate New York. Yep. And so you know, we were we were lucky and we were really well received um, right out of the gate. After the Trump election, Jen decided to take a break. And she really is such a great sort of trainer and cultivator of talent. And so she's been doing that kind of work um, ever since. And, you know, I just kept going, moved the firm to Baltimore and after Trump won and, and kept going and feel really um, right now kind of excited that there are so many women joining um the media consulting world, because we just have to get, we just have, we're going to benefit as a party 
if we have more energy and more diversity in the um, ad making business. It's if we had it all figured out, we Democrats would be further down the road here in we, you know, we, we just barely have control of the House and Senate, which is good, right? We're glad we have that. But I think there are there are races that would benefit from having more women ad makers, frankly, more black ad makers, something that I'm really working as hard as I can to get more women and people of color behind the camera on sets and um, writing scripts and and doing that kind of work, I just think as a party that's, and as a country, it's really important. Well, obviously you're a talented strategist, you know, at that point and today, certainly know uh, how to make effective ads, but the the gene, the trait that is the, the strate- strategist gene, the ad maker gene, that's different than the business gene. What did you learn about starting, running your own business you know, again, a decade in now, what have you learned uh, about running a business that you wish you'd known from the start? Oh, that's a great question. And it goes back to sort of that Emily's List work ethic of having to be prepared. Jen and I started the firm in January of 2011, but in September of 2007, I started an MBA at Hopkins. So I, from, from 2007 to like late 2011, I was working full-time and getting my MBA at night. And I don't really think you need an MBA to start a media consulting firm. I think it was a little bit of overkill, but I was curious about business. I was, I had the time, I didn't have kids yet. And I just decided I was going to go all the way and get the MBA. And in a way it was, there's certainly, you know, a lot about markets and statistics and all of these things that are not necessarily part of what I needed to know to run a business. But for me, it was important for me to feel confident that I wasn't missing anything, right? That like I understood the basics of profit and loss and and sort of how to do basic accounting and other things that are important for under, for being a business owner. I did get that out of the MBA. I mean, there were, there were easier ways. There were less time-consuming ways. There were more cost-efficient ways of learning this, but that's the the method that I took because I just wanted to, I didn't want to feel like there was something I didn't know. And certainly the MBA taught me a lot, but also then gave me the confidence that I could make good, smart financial decisions for us. The thing that I, I think is important for helping people understand about TV, media consulting and production is like you do have to be really solid in in budgeting because we don't most nine times out of ten you don't get paid until your candidate is on television and that can be 18 months after you're hired we were super frugal we did all the research on the credit cards and got our lowest interest rates and we scraped it we we you know scraped the money together so that we could survive and and hire staff and have a, a, a strong firm those first couple of years but there's nothing all that complicated about it you just have to be smart at planning and budgeting and being, and then once you're smart at planning and budgeting, it's not that different than being a campaign manager. You just have to be confident in making decisions with the information you have and keep it moving. But from a business perspective, um, you know, I think that it's, you know, it's about being able to build a solid spreadsheet. If you're a campaign manager and you're taking a startup campaign from zero to 3 million is not all that different than if you're running a small business. So a lot of the the budgeting and and financial pieces that I learned on a campaign were even more important than the, than the classroom lessons at the MBA. Yeah. Well, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, You mentioned uh, Mayor Buttigieg, you mentioned Congresswoman Slaughter as some of the earlier races uh, in your own firm, putting your stamp on things. What are some of the other uh, races, campaigns or clients uh, that you've had uh, in this decade with McKenna Media uh, that you're uh, especially proud of? Well, today and every day, we're very proud of our work for Deb Holland, who um, has been nominated by the president to serve as Secretary of Interior. And she, we did her television advertising in her congressional race um, when she won in 2018. It was a really tough primary. And we look back and I'm so delighted that she has such sort of universal support for this appointment because that primary was complicated and hard and Deb is a is an incredible worker and a really smart person, and um, she she powered us through, and we won that primary. But that was a big deal, certainly. So I, I'm excited because we also, you know, you look at the cabinet now, and you have Pete Buttigieg at transportation and Deb Holland at interior. These are people that I have 
I've been lucky enough to work with and really get to know well and, and respect and admire and feel so secure in having them in the cabinet. In 2016, we worked on Kamala Harris's Senate race with a media firm out of California who we learned a lot from and really liked working with. And, and I so admire the vice president. She's terrific. Martha, you mentioned a lot of very formidable figures there. Let, let's let's dive into a couple of them. Uh, first and foremost, can you talk a bit about your experiences with uh, then California Attorney General Kamala Harris in her 2016 race? What did you see in her from being up close that perhaps the rest of us wouldn't know just observing her from afar? Sure. In the summer of 2015, Jen and I, um, my then business partner, um, went to California and met with the then Attorney General Kamala Harris and her staffer and aide Juan Rodriguez, who went on to run her presidential campaign and is a good friend. We were lucky enough to be asked to join the team for the ad-making side of the 2016 um, Senate race. And we were just welcomed with open arms by the Attorney General and her team of longtime California advisors, um, Sean Clegg and A. Smith, you know, it was such an education in California politics because, um, you know, California, as we all know, could be its own nation. It is humongous, certainly in comparison to many of the states where I had worked and has its own set of issues, its own way of communicating. And it's, it, first of all, it's a very, very hard state to get known in. We were just really lucky to be able to learn so much about politics in California on such a big scale. Certainly it was the beginning of the top two uh, primary system out there where the top two vote getters go on to the general election, regardless of party. So the primary election and the general were both basically against Loretta Sanchez. Um, and so it was it was a very different formula than any work that we had done before. And I, I would say that, you know, we made tremendous friendships, strong feelings about the great team around the attorney general and and she's so fantastic. Now our vice president Kamala Harris, just sort of a very very smart, thoughtful person and the impression that I have of her is she's the kind of person who asks a lot of open-ended questions and really sees her job among her staff and advisors is is to like generate ideas and discussion that really helps to figure out how to solve the problem, how to make a decision, be it on the campaign or on the policy side. And that's why she has such smart, terrific, you know, insightful people around her. And I um, have also always appreciated her commitment to bringing more women, of women, people of color, more sort of young people, black people, brown people to the table and say, your voice is important here. And I want you to be part of my decision-making circle. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to listen to you. I want your input. And, you know, I really, um, I value that in her. And I, I think it is something that has really put her in good stead now as she's headed, um, you know, she's in the, in the white house with Joe Biden. I mean, I just feel like we are in such good hands as a country with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And, and while you're involved with Kamala Harris at the, the midpoint, at least as we sit here today, it's sort of the midpoint of her political career in 2016. You also mentioned being part of Pete Buttigieg's uh, mayoral campaigns well before he had a national profile. Uh, you to talk a little bit about the, the, your experiences with Pete Buttigieg as far back as 2011, his first run for mayor of South Bend in those formative early campaigns of his. Yeah. So Pete and I started working together in, I would say, January or February of 2011. The mayor's contest, the primary race, which really was the campaign um, in South Bend, because it is a city dominated by Democrats, was in May of 2011. And he is such an extraordinary person, was very methodical in his approach to the mayor's race in 2011. What he did was, I love this because I use it all the time when I'm starting something new or trying to learn information or get an, about a new place or project. He met people in South Bend, you know, asked them the issues that were ha in, going on and things they were concerned about, what they would like to see in their next mayor, heard their point of view and their input, and then asked them at the end of each meeting, sort of said, who are the three other people that I should go talk to? And at the end of that process, he knew he had come to the end of the process when he was getting names back of all people that he'd already met. He wanted to know people from all different communities in South Bend. He wanted to hear from them. He wanted to learn from them. And then he wanted to be the mayor. 
I really see many of the things that he did as mayor from, you know, he rearranged the patterns of streets into downtown to just bring more people into downtown, create more um, walk a more walkable South Bend. And, you know, one of his that was one of his goals is like, how do we bring more people into South Bend to work, to go out to dinner, to come to concerts and other community events? And one of the things that was standing in the way was the traffic patterns and the and the parking. And he fixed that. And, you know, I think it's like a very simple thing, but it's a real quality of life issue for people in South Bend. And he heard that and then he figured out a way to change it. You know, he's a guy that takes those kinds of nuts and bolts issues really seriously. A lot of attention to detail. He's got the idea. He puts the team together and he gets the work done and then he moves on. And it all what he leaves in his wake is sort of an improved quality of life for people. And on an issue that doesn't generally get the headlines, could be seen as controversial, whatever the case may be. He just like does the work, goes and has coffee with as many people who he possibly can to hear their point of view on it makes the decision, implements it, and things get better. And I think that's going to be make him a tremendous transportation secretary. We saw it happen in real time. So it's maybe easy to, um, to overlook just how impressive it was to go from a, a mayor of a small Indiana town, a former mayor of, a, of, a, of an Indiana town to winning the Iowa caucus. And now, and now the sky is the limit. Another, another historic advancement that you've been part of that you have a connection to uh, is uh, helping to elect Deb Haaland uh, in Congress yeah. in New Mexico, who now, of course, is making history as part of the Biden cabinet. That must be, you know, pretty cool for you to see how this has all come together in a relative short time. I got to know Deb over about a course of about 18 months prior to the to the primary working together. And she is fierce. I mean, I think we had a lot of internal conversations on the campaign about being in a Democratic primary. There were a lot of different candidates. And I think as Democrats, oftentimes we sort of use the same language, like fighting for working families, whatever the case may be. We sort of have a, some Democratic Party boilerplate that candidates default to. And um, I remember having this conversation with Deb and the team early on and saying like, in this primary, like Deb is head and shoulders above the field. But how do we establish that? How do we let people know that? And the word fierce really summed it up for us. And so, you know, we use the word fierce. Deb uses it when Hillary Clinton tweeted the day that Deb was sworn in as interior secretary and, and referred to Deb as fierce and her fierce leadership. I just, you know, it made my heart swell with pride because, you know, I feel like it was a word that we came that we sort of settled on in the political context of the campaign to really demonstrate Deb's leadership and her steel backbone. But at the same time, it's just been embraced by so many people because it's so um, illustrative of who she is. You know, she's a really thoughtful, generous person. And I've never worked on a campaign where the candidate thanked us as much as Deb did. You know, almost every call she would stop and say, you know, at some point in the beginning or the end and just say, I am very grateful that each of you are here to help me. It meant a lot because she wasn't winning that primary most days. You know, she won it on the day that mattered, but that was a very difficult primary. She was outspent um, by a significant margin and she pulled it off. But I will say the other piece of that that was so important for me is as the first Native American woman in Congress, you know, Sharice Davids won the same day in November, but it felt like with Deb in this primary, we, we were we were the sort of on the cutting edge here of, the, of doing something for the first time. There's a Black caucus in Congress. There's a Hispanic caucus in Congress. There's a women's caucus, but there was nobody who had no Native American presence in Congress when she ran. And so no organization of members who had done it before from which she could ask questions or learn from that for some reason that sort of stuck with me when in realizing how brave and tough and fierce she was in saying I'm ready to go first I'm going to immediately turn around and you know I think she campaigned for Peggy Flanagan that cycle she campaigned with Sharice you know she campaigned um with other Native American women right away she won her primary and she got to work and said I will not be the last I'm going to put my time and energy into helping other Native American women right away. It, it does catch me sometimes to realize that Kamala Harris is our vice president and Pete Buttigieg and Deb Holland are in the cabinet. Thank you to Joe Biden, right? For being, for seeing their talent and for picking them and putting them in really important positions to help determine the course of our of Americans' lives. 
And, and you certainly have had sort of a Midas touch in terms of your this this uh, intersection with so many people who are who are around Biden and part of this cabinet. And, and you've been so kind to let me go into detail and just scratch the surface on some of those races. Uh, but let me change gears and ask a couple of broader questions. Thinking back to the time when you started your own media firm, presumably you're pitching races, you're competing with other consultants who have reels and examples of 10 years worth of ads that they've made. Uh, and here you are in your own, in the infancy of your own firm. And I would imagine aren't really able to show a ton of examples of campaigns that you've been in because you're just getting started in the first year or first couple of years. How would you advise people to navigate that situation when somebody who's just starting a new a new entity, a new firm, a new position is having to compete with people who who are uh, established in the field. It's tough. I'll say that, Zach. It is tough. And you know, I think that part of what Jen and I faced when we got started was people would say like, "Oh, we love Jen and Martha. They're so smart. They're hardworking, but like they don't know how to make ads." And so, I mean, I think part of what was incumbent upon us is to because we were like, we make ads. Like, oh, no, 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 no. We make ads. Like, we are ad makers. We are media consultants. Because there were definitely people who were like, we'll hire you, but not to be the ad maker. Like, we'll hire you as a consultant or the strategist or the whatever. And we were like, no, we want to make the ads. We want to tell the story. So we went out and we found really strong production partners and, and editors and shooters. And we built a really terrific production arm of the firm so that we could make great ads. And other than that, in the very beginning, we were just talking our way into the door. You know, we were just sort of like, we're new, we're hardworking, we have a lot to prove, and we will give your race our all. And lucky for us, it worked. I will say it's it is um it is not as easy as it should be for newcomers in the consulting business in democratic politics. I I frankly think, you know, and I've been trying to be very encouraging of women um, ad makers both at firms that they can start or at firms that they're joining. But like, we just, you know, we have to make it easier for newcomers. And, you know, we have to, we have, so, you know, we have to open doors for black media consultants and and black cinematographers and editors and and do more for people of color and women, because it's, you, ca- you have to be able to give people a chance to prove themselves. And I think that if you're a young person and you are, or not a not young person, you can be an old person, but if you're new, starting out in a new industry, find, you know, do what Mr. Rogers says and find the helpers, you know, and find the people that you think are going to be encouraging of you and, and open a door for you and just ask for what you need. And sometimes people will say no. And sometimes people will say yes, but you might be surprised at how many people say yes, if, you, if what you need is an opportunity or what you need is a chance, you know, you got to ask for what you need. It. I want to acknowledge that it is harder than it should be, but it is definitely worth trying. If you want to do this work, it is worth finding people who will help you get the get the opportunities. You've hired a lot of people over the years, not just in your role uh, now a decade into your own media firm, but in, in a lot of the other uh, places in the political sphere that we've talked about. A lot of times you get a lot of good resumes. You know, people have similar resumes, similar backgrounds, perhaps. There's obviously core competencies that anybody is looking for, the basics. But do you have advice on how people can stand out? Well, I always used to look for the people that waited tables. People who have spent any time in the service industry, I always want to interview them because if you can make, keep customers happy, you can keep the the chef and the food expediter happy. That is that's really hard work in my mind, and it, you got to work long hours. You got to be able to do all sorts of grunt work. So I do like interviewing. If you're if you're somebody looking to get a job in politics and you've spent time waiting tables, put that on your resume. There's there's almost no you know job title or background or whatever that would ever disqualify you from working on a campaign like all of us should you know if you're trying to if you're trying to get someone elected you're trying to talk to voters in a community about supporting them you know all walks of life are welcome and all experiences are welcome and i i think we should be the kind of people who manage campaigns or or hire people on campaigns we should be um much more open to non-traditional backgrounds than we are so yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great because a lot of there might be a temptation to leave some of that off of a resume or to not bring that up, but but to be um, uh, as trans, as transparent as possible, perhaps because you never know what could catch the eye of the person it, making the hiring process. That that that's a really a really great tip. I know you do a lot of work with the organization Emerge. Can you talk yes, about Emerge, Emerge and 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 you know what what is Emerge and, and what yep. is your role within it? 
So Emerge, I love Emerge. So Emerge is an organization that helps to um, recruit and train women to run, Democratic women to run for state and local office. And there is a, a national organization called Emerge America and Ashanti Golar is the president and she is fantastic. And I um, work with a woman named Diane Fink and we are, um, I'm the board chair and Diane is the executive director of Emerge Maryland. And so the Emerge exists in different states to help recruit and train Democratic women to run for state and local office just in that state. And, um, you know, here in Maryland, we got started, um, I think we'll have our 10 year anniversary in 2022, but we um, have helped, we've added 15 women to the Maryland General Assembly in um, just that short period of time, women who have come through the program and then either won election or been appointed to the legislature. There's actually a woman, Rachel Jones, who is the, um, just appointed to our General Assembly last week. She is the first Black woman to represent Calvert County in the Maryland General Assembly. And, you know, she said to me that she had never thought of running for office herself until she heard me speak about Emerge Maryland. And a light bulb went off about that she really, that there was a place in the in the legislature or in the local office for her. And, you know, that's the kind of thing, like we have all this talent in Maryland in particular, we have so many, we have had the numbers of women in our legislature drop. We have no fed women in our federal delegation at all since Mikulski retired. And um, yet we have so much talent, so many talented women um, across the state in different jobs and different roles. And so our job at Emerge Maryland is to sort of help women see themselves as candidates and then give them the training and the tools that they need to be successful candidates. And then they run their own races. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of it because we have, um, you know, six or seven women now serving on county or city councils across the state. As I said, 15 women, new women added to the general assembly. And, you know, I just think the best is yet to come. And, you know, it's all about in the party, we often talk about building the pipeline, just feel so lucky to have been able to help build the pipeline here in Maryland and in my home state for the last 10 years, the really great partner in Diane, and frankly, some really tremendous women who have um, applied and participated in the program, graduated and gone on to be elected. Uh, and you and you were talking about the, the Emerge Maryland, but there's Emerge chapters in most, maybe all 50 states, almost almost everywhere, as well as a, a very strong national organization. Uh, a couple other things. You've been a media consultant for a decade, involved at very high levels uh, in politics before that. I know that you're on the road a lot, you know, in, in a normal in normal time, at least, on the road a lot. What have you picked up about tips or best habits about traveling to make the travel a little bit less of a grind? Well, now I have um, two kids. I have a, two little girls. One is seven and one is eight. So back when we traveled on airplanes, it really was like, nobody can talk to me. Nobody can sneeze on me. Nobody needs to be fed. I just get to be on this plane for be it an hour or four hours of, you know, my, of my time. And so I, you know, lots of people dread traveling, but for me, um, it sort of was breaking up the, the monotony of, of being at home with my husband, with little kids, but everything has changed with COVID. It is so strange to have not traveled much. Now I was on a plane some over the summer and I, I found, Zach, that people don't actually talk to you if you're wearing a face mask and ski goggles in an airplane. So I, for a while, was wearing ski goggles because I didn't know if COVID could be transmitted by your eyes. So I covered myself up and nobody talks to you when you're wearing ski goggles inside and you are not at a ski resort. But, you know, I think that it's, you know, look, I don't think you can really get to know a place without being there. I mean, you can read books and ask questions and do all that, but like you have to go experience some things. And so, you know, I'm very much looking forward to the COVID being over for a lot of reasons, but you know, that traveling and getting to know other communities is really part of it. One of my last questions, uh, Martha, is, and I borrowed this from the economist, Tyler Cowan, and to paraphrase him, he might talk about the Martha McKenna production function, which is there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of hardworking people out there, but what's made you different? What do you think is unique about you, your approach, that you've been able to be successful? Woo, we're going deep. I do think that I benefited from being, as a girl, 
I benefited from a number of things. One sort of, I came of age playing sports when there were no girls sports. And so, you know, as a kid, you know, playing soccer, it was like the boys and girls together and there were two girls or whatever on a soccer team. And that was just the way it was because there were no girls soccer teams when I came up. And then when I went to high school and I sort of was in this all girls environment, which was incredibly supportive and very academic, but also a real social justice angle and definitely like a civic participation lesson there in that at, at IND with all girls, you know, that I just feel like those kind of formative experiences gave me a lot of a confidence to take risks. I had never known a campaign manager before I decided I was going to become a campaign manager, right? Like I, I didn't know anybody who had done these things um, before I wanted to do them, but I just had the confidence from my parents and my family and my school to schooling, you know, to go give it a try. And, you know, I think that is, I, I sort of take it for granted because it's just sort of who I am, but I do think that it's something that as I get older, I want to very aware of trying to teach my girls, my daughters, but also, you know, just other women who are in politics and saying like, take yourself seriously, go do big things. And, you know, I, I really admire, um, you know, the women who have, you know, sort of done big things in the party, both from a candidate's perspective and, and managers as well. And, you know, but I think that that is where Jen and I sort of went charging into this very male dominated space. You know, we just took ourselves really seriously and we were overprepared and, and it worked. But I think that a lot of that comes from being lucky that I had such sort of encouraging parents and a, and a number of sort of formative experiences that helped give me the confidence to do it. But um, people trusting you as if you trust yourself, because it kind of comes across if you're not quite sure. And that confidence is contagious. And I, I definitely think that's a part of it. Because when people hire you to be their political advisor, they're hiring you to tell them how to win. And, and you know, that's a, that's a big responsibility. I remember when we started Emerge, saying to Diane, like that first class, like, we've now told these women that we can tell them how to win, that if they do emerge Maryland, we will be giving them the tools that they need to win. And that's a huge promise to make to someone and a huge sort of almost informal contract that you're making with them. And one of the reasons I'm breathing a sigh of relief, you know, after nine years of emerge, it worked, right? It worked. We were able to do that. But, you know, I think in politics, you, you know, you have to always be learning and you always have to be questioning and and looking at the losses and looking at the wins to see how you can get better because you really are sort of taking on responsibility for somebody else's career and somebody else's dreams. And in some respects, somebody else's community. And, you know, it's a real, it's really a a true responsibility that we should take very seriously. Well, let's end on a couple of recommendations. First, let me ask you just something. It doesn't have to be brain food. It can be comfort food. What's something, a book, a television show, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently that you would recommend people give a try? Definitely. Like most people during COVID, I'm taking a lot of long walks around my neighborhood here in Baltimore City. I have a little path that I that I walk around um, almost every day or every other day. And I put my, my headphones in and I listen to the podcasts. And, you know, I did get hooked on um, Tara Palmieri's Power, I think it's called. It's about Robert Maxwell. And who was a real media baron um, that I did not know about. I mean, I I knew I know something about Rupert Murdoch, but I did not know anything about Robert Maxwell. And he is quite the character. Um, and and I got hooked on that podcast, and I really um, I really enjoyed it because it's it's almost like one of those podcasts where you have absolutely no idea what the next chapter of the story is going to be because this guy's life is just so bonkers. I can't answer any question like this without giving some sort of a Baltimore plug or Maryland plug. So I have a good friend, um, Candace Dodson Reed, who is the host of a podcast called Elevate Maryland. And they talk to political leaders and academics and reporters and authors all about things that um, can elevate Maryland. And um, it's really got a great vibe to it and a really good community following. And that's another one that I enjoy. Well, the final uh, uh, recommendation I'd ask, and I can't, as an evangelist for all things Baltimore, couldn't let you out without this, but if somebody's doing a day trip to Baltimore, a weekend in Baltimore, what should they do to make sure they're getting the the, the best of the Baltimore experience? 
Uh, well, first of all, you got to come to Baltimore. It is a terrific place. We do have the National Aquarium, which is really very cool right there on the Inner Harbor. So you got to walk around the Inner Harbor and go to the National Aquarium. And from the National Aquarium, you can walk to the um, Black History Museum, which is a very important museum on your way to Little Italy, where you can get some great Italian food. And um, we also have a lot of public markets and our public markets are, we have some in South Baltimore, downtown, Belvedere, and there's, there's really sort of a long and terrific history of our, of our public markets in the city. So you have to do that. And then you got to catch an Orioles game. So, you know, you could make a whole day of it, a day trip from Washington, DC or wherever you come from. It's, it's a fun city to walk around and the water is beautiful. And um, inevitably you will run into some interesting people while you're here too. Great. Well, that gives everyone their marching orders. Martha McKenna, uh, this is a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time today. Oh, of course. I'm glad you had me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.